You're listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. To learn more about us, visit our website at gracereformed.org. And now, today's sermon. Morning, church. It is really good to see you guys. I was trying to remember and think back when the last time I missed two Sundays in a row, having been in uh, full-time ministry now for 10 years, and it has been a minute. It might have been 10 years. Um, but absence uh, indeed does make the heart grow fonder, and I've desperately missed gathering together with God's people to sit under his word together with you guys. So uh, I am extra joyful to be here with you and to receive Christ together. I also get to wish you guys a happy new year. And I think this year in particular, maybe, uh, we're a little bit more excited about that than, than usual. I don't think we shed many tears over 2020 moving on, right? Um, I always like new year. It's nice to have a, a, a fresh start of sorts, even though nothing actually changes when we flip the calendar, right? Um, but at least mentally, right? It feels like a new and a fresh beginning. Um, but as I was thinking about that, there's a dark side to New Year's as well, at least the way we think about it and the way that we tend to process it. Because New Year's ends up in our culture being kind of the the high holy time of individual performance. It's the high holy holiday of this. And let me me walk you through what I mean. As we come to the New Year, we are encouraged to, to look back right, on what has transpired in the year before and to think about what we've done, what we've accomplished, how we've grown, what we have achieved, right? We try to spot all the ways that we have been good Christians, good wives, good fathers, good friends, good employees, good students, good leaders, or whatever collection of identities happens to be yours, right? And we look for evidence, right, that that we were but we were good, that we were enough, that we did these things okay in this past year. We, we want to be validated in that last trip around the sun. We want to know that we were enough. And of course, part of the reason we do this is because deep down, we know and we have this awareness that we weren't actually all that good. It doesn't take much to recall the failures, right? And if we're being honest, we really haven't improved all that much. We're largely still the same person We were a year ago. We have a lot of the same failings, the same struggles, the same difficulties. Not that much has changed. For as much much as I want to squint and see a radically new and improved me who won the year, there's much more that's the same than is different. And if I've realized that I haven't really conquered and produced and grown that much, The other fear leaks in that how long before everybody else realizes it too, right? So what our world offers us is a sacrament of sorts, right? For for this situation we find ourselves in. And whether we call it resolutions or goals or habits or whatever, by any name, they can provide us the same opportunity, right? We get this chance to create a new system for ourselves by which, hey, last year we may not have done that much. We may not have accomplished that much. We may not have grown this much. But this year... I've got these things, right? And I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to grow like this. And when I do those things, I will be okay. So this is the new hope, right? We create this new system by which we can climb the ladder and feel that we're enough. I may not have been great last year, but I will do this and that and the other thing. And this year I will win. This year I will be enough. And I will feel okay, and people will respect me, and I won't feel like a failure anymore. 
And then, of course, we find ourselves back in the same spot next year or next month or next week or tomorrow. What this cycle does is it focuses us in on ourselves. It swings us back and forth between despair when we see our failure and self-righteousness as we craft a system that, that fits us, right? So that we can feel okay about ourselves, at least in comparison to other people. But today, we're going to look at a passage from 1 Corinthians 4 that's going to reorient us and free us from that cycle for better things. Before we dive into the passage, I just want to give you guys a little bit of context because we haven't been in 1 Corinthians, right? And we're just kind of picking up in the middle. But 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth, you guys might remember, has some issues, lots of issues. But really, centrally, a lot of these issues all come back to kind of an underlying thing, and that's division. Uh, The Corinthian church is really divided, divisive. They have a really hard time loving each other. And that's really kind of what Paul comes back to over and over again. And the way that Paul's tackled that at the beginning of the book, the first three chapters that we're kind of skipping over to get to chapter four, is that it's shown up in in factions. The Church of Corinth has basically latched on to the various teachers that they've heard, and they've kind of aligned themselves. Some are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of Cephas, Peter. Some are saying, I'm of Apollos. Some are saying, I'm of Christ. That's like the trump card. Like, oh, you're of Paul. I'm of Jesus. Right? So they've kind of splintered off into these different factions. Right? And this divisiveness has permeated the church. And so Paul's been dealing with this in these first three chapters. And now in chapter four, he, he makes a little bit of a digression, but it's an important digression for what he's actually trying to lead the Corinthians into. In the passage we're going to read at the beginning of chapter four, he's not going to talk about these divisions and factions explicitly themselves. He's going to talk about how he's processing being caught in the crossfire of this. Right. And and the way he talks about that actually gets at the root that's underneath these divisions and actually is going to be the thing that, that frees and enables the Corinthians and by extension, us, to have a different orientation for their lives. So let's get into it. First Corinthians 4, we're going to read the first seven verses. And then we'll unpack it. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Because as we look at these verses, we're going to kind of have a little bit of a progression here. The first thing that we're going to see is why it is that God's judgment alone matters. I'm going to focus on verses 3 and 4 there. God's judgment alone matters. Why is that? The next thing we're going to look at is what is that judgment? If God's judgment alone matters, the real critical question is what is that judgment? 
And then we're going to see what the implications are for those truths, uh, for the way our life is oriented. So focus with me on, on verses 3 and 4. Here Paul says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now think about this divisiveness that's raging in Corinth. No doubt Paul was being kind of leveraged by these factions against each other. Those who, who claimed to be of him were no doubt kind of weaponizing him and using him as kind of a hammer against their brothers and sisters in Christ who aligned with other teachers. And then on the other hand, other factions were probably defaming and, and running Paul down a little bit to justify their alignment with other teachers. Right? And I have no doubt, I put myself in, in Paul's shoes, if that's what was going on in the church I minister to, he's no doubt wrestling with like, man, what, what happened there? Like, what did I do wrong? What, what did I not give them? How, how is this what's coming out of there? Right? So, so there's kind of what the Corinthian church is doing with him. And then there's kind of how he's himself processing his own ministry there and, and how, how to try and how to assess that when he's seeing the fruit that's coming out of Corinth. But then after, in light of that, Paul says those things don't matter. What the church is saying about him doesn't matter. What he thinks about himself doesn't matter. Why is that the case? He says only what God thinks, only what God's assessment is matters. Well, this comes down to the nature and authority of who God is. And I thought of a, an example to kind of draw this out that is really kind of silly, but I think it gets the job done. Sitcom The Office, right? You guys, most of you guys are probably familiar with that, but there's an incompetent, naive boss, Michael Scott, right? And in one episode, he's gotten himself into crazy money trouble. And he doesn't really know what to do about it. He's just caught in a spiral. And one of his employees starts talking to him about bankruptcy and saying, hey, bankruptcy is this awesome thing. It fixes all your problems. You declare bankruptcy, then everything goes away and it fixes everything. And Michael Scott's like, yeah, that sounds good. So he walks out of the break room where he's talking to his play, walks out into the Millie office and says, I declare bankruptcy. And uh, there he goes. He's like, I'm, I'm good now. Everything's fixed. I've declared bankruptcy. Now, is Michael Scott bankrupt now? Is he, does he have those protections? No, he doesn't. One of his other employees comes and says, that doesn't really work the way that you think it works, right? Michael Scott has no authority to declare himself bankrupt. He has no authority to put those protections in on himself, right? So it doesn't matter how loud he yells, I declare bankruptcy. It doesn't work, right? This is what's going on with us. When we look to ourselves and how we feel to be justified, we do that. We look just as ludicrous as that and say, I am righteous. It doesn't do anything because you don't have the authority to do that. You are not the judge nor is anybody else in this room or any other human being. There is one person who has that authority over your life. And that's the person who gave you that life, your creator. He alone sets the parameters of what is good and what is not. He alone has the knowledge to judge you rightly and justly. And he alone has the authority to render a judgment that actually is in force over your life. This is why God's judgment is the only one that matters. Paul puts it this way in verse 5. He says, do not pronounce judgment before the time because the Lord, when the Lord, before the Lord comes, 
who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. God is uniquely placed in his authority, in his knowledge, to be the one who judges you and assesses your life. The point is this, right? If you have the backing of the king, it doesn't matter what the peasants think of you, right? And if you are under the king's disfavor, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you either. It will do you no good. There is one whose opinion and assessment matters. Which, of course, brings us to, to the, the next critical question, right? Because if that is truly the case, then the only thing that matters is what is that judgment? Right? If God is the one who has the authority and the right to judge us, and his judgment is the only one that matters, what is that judgment? As wonderful it is, is to maybe be, to be liberated from the judgments of men or, or the judgments of how we feel and our fickle feelings that move all over the place, it's a bit terrifying to consider the fact that we rise or fall based on standing before a perfect holy God. Hebrews 10, 31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. All right, so what this judgment is means everything. But the good news is, is that while it may be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of living gods, we are not in his hands by ourselves. We do not stand before him in our own righteousness. The work of Christ transforms the judgment of God from the most terrifying to the most glorious and hopeful and joyous circumstance you can possibly imagine. Jesus bore the weight of every sin and failure that brings us up short of satisfying God's judgment that would merit his wrath. The full wrath for sin was poured out on him at Calvary. There is nothing left to punish. When we're united to him by faith, the wrath of the righteous judge is exhausted on Christ. On Christ alone, there is nothing left for us. This is part of what God conveys to us in our baptism, right? Water represents judgment. And we go down into that water, but we come back out. We pass through that judgment because the broken, bloodied body of our Savior shields us and absorbs all the wrath. But that's only part of the story. That's mercy, and we need it, and it's wonderful, but there's even more. We also receive grace. Mercy is the freedom from, from harmful things that you deserve. Grace is receiving goodness that you don't deserve. Right? Our perfect holy God is not merely wrathful against sin, but he also richly rewards righteousness. And Jesus was perfectly righteous in every respect. And in doing so, he won all that the Father promised for obedience. Life and glory a people, a kingdom. And guys, get this. Scripture goes so far as to say in Romans 8 that joined to Christ by faith, we are co-heirs with Christ. Just get what that means? That means everything that Christ deserves, everything that he has won from the Father by his obedience and his righteousness now belongs equally to you because you are united to Christ by faith. That is incredibly profound. You just haven't been spared from your punishment. You have been lavished 
with everything that Christ has won and earned and merited by his perfect righteousness. Paul bookends the passage that we read with this reality. He's trying to to get the Corinthians to see how rich they really are. The end of chapter 3 goes like this. He tells the Corinthians, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, God's ministers, they belong to the Corinthians because they are united to Christ. Or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And then, of course, the the end of our passage that we read. Chapter 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Focusing on the, the gracious nature that this is gifted to us. It is not earned. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. This is the glorious thing about the reality that God is the only one who judges you. United to Christ in faith, we can be certain of what that judgment is over us. And it will be the same judgment that is rendered to Christ. When God spoke from the clouds and said to his son, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased those same words are now his declaration over us. And that will not change when you fail tomorrow. It will not fail, change when you fail the next day. It will not change based on how you feel. It will not change based on how anybody else thinks about you or talks about you. It has been secured by the perfect finished work of Jesus. That God's judgment is the only judgment that matters. And united to Christ, that is that judgment. That is who you are. And nobody gets to contradict or undermine it. So guys, in light of that truth, our life gets a radical reorientation. And if we think back to that cycle we talked about at the beginning, the the thing about that is that it, it is radically oriented on yourself. I'm constantly thinking about myself and how I can be okay how I can be all right, whether it's by coming up with some system for myself, trying to figure out a way to manipulate my emotions so I feel okay, or by looking out at you guys and trying to get some sort of validation from you to know that I'm okay, right? It's all about me. And it has to be because I'm not safe. I'm not okay. I have to desperately try to find a way to be okay because I'm scared and I'm afraid and I'm not safe. But what this truth, that God alone, God's own assessment of us is the only one that matters, and what that assessment is in Christ, it changes that. It redirects our vision off ourselves. If every need I have is met, and there's no risk, no risk at all of losing that, it's perfectly safe. What can I possibly spend all my time on myself for? I don't need anything. There's no gaps left to fill. There, there's nothing left to do there. And so what does that do, right? Suddenly I'm free. Like I'm free. I've got all this free time. I've got riches and abundance. And now I'm able to turn my eyes off myself. First and foremost, look to Christ. Remember why that's the case. 
And then look at you guys. Look at my neighbor. And now I don't have to use you for my own validation and to justify my existence or to get something out of you. Because of the richness I have in Christ, I can now love and care for you and give to you. I can help to bear your burdens. I can weep with you when you weep and rejoice with you when you rejoice. And I can care more about your thriving and how well you're doing than I even care about my own because I'm fine. I'm safe because of Jesus. It totally reorients our vision of what life here, life in Christ looks like. I love the line from, from the modern hymn in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. There's nothing left to worry about. And now we're freed to look outside of ourselves. God's desire for us has always been to love and trust him and to love our neighbor. That's been the way he set things up from the beginning. But sin has turned ourselves in on ourselves so much that we're completely unable to do that. We're at too much risk, too dangerous. We just desperately strive to be okay. But it's no accident that God's plan of redemption is designed in a unique way that frees us to do that. By God taking care of everything, he liberates us to love our neighbors and to rejoice in his work. Salvation by grace through faith takes all the pressure off of us and makes the space for us to think about and spend ourselves for others rather than using them to get what we think we need. As this has huge implications for our life as a church, right? I think too often, particularly in the Western church, we think of following Christ as an individual activity, right? We're kind of out there chasing records, trying to, you know, get, get, get a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, trying to set the next record, level up personally, right? And we just happen to show up at the same place on Sunday. That is not God's vision for his church. That is not God's vision for the people that he's put together. The Christian life is a team sport. Everything I do affects you guys. Everything you guys do affects me. We're not actually, we're more than a team, right? We're a family. And even more than that, we are all members of one body. We are so integrated, right? And so if we, if we do that, you know, I, I played sports growing up and I, I love team sports, right? And you have somebody who chases statistics and chases their own kind of personal advancements. The team gets cratered, right? But when you realize that it's all about the team's success and the team moving forward, what happens with you doesn't really matter, right? All that matters is, is how you affected the whole, right? That's the game we're playing as the church. That's the game that we're playing in the Christian life. I, as my personal kind of Climbing the ladder doesn't matter. What matters is the church functioning together, building itself up in love. That is what God has designed. That's what he's made. And that's why he's given us a gospel that frees us to love one another and to not have to narcissistically obsess about ourselves. That's why Paul went here in this passage. He's dealing with a church that is just divided over all sorts of things. If we go further on in the chapter, they're divided over the way they look at spiritual gifts. They're divided over the Lord's Supper. They're divided over class structures. They're divided over all kinds of things because they are trying to feel okay. They're comparing themselves to one another to feel better about themselves. And the problem isn't, Paul can just say, hey, stop doing that. 
But that doesn't give them what they need. What they need to realize is how rich they are, that they don't need that. That's what will actually free them to love one another and to put all that behind them. That's why Paul goes here. And he wants to do the same thing for us. So as you go into this new year, my hope and my prayer for you, for me, is that rather than focusing on what you did or did not accomplish or how you grew or didn't grow or how people think about you or don't think about you, that you would be refocused on what Christ has done for you, for all that he has accomplished for you, for the fact that it is sure and guaranteed and cannot be lost no matter what you do. And that that would then spill over as you realize how rich you actually are. It would spill over in generosity and love and care for your neighbors. First and foremost here in the church, that we would be a church marked by incredible love for one another that flows out of the generosity of God to us. But then that would spill over even further, right? Because this freedom that we have, this riches in Christ, we live in a community that desperately needs that. We are in a culture that's marked by cancel culture and people telling each other, you're enough, which is all lies. And it's all papering over deep, deep hurt and deep captivity and slavery and people who are desperate for the freedom that we have been gifted. So as that love spills over first to caring for one another, it spills over out into the community that we get to reach. John talked about the fact that we give because we want to see the gospel go forward. We want to see people free like this. We have good news. We don't have a new ladder to give people to climb. We have the good news of freedom from every ladder they've ever tried to climb. What a gift, church, not to have that ourselves, but then to have the privilege to be able to take that, to have something rich and full and wonderful to offer to our neighbors, not only here, but out in the world who don't know Christ yet. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, where everyone is in equal need of grace. To plan a visit or to learn more about us, visit our website at gracereformed.org.